welcome to Dark Habits and our Motivar podcast. I am Spencer, and with me is my friend, J-Dog. Yes, I'm and here. We're talking about a movie that he loved. He he told me a couple days ago he, how much he loved this movie. I was clicking my heels and, <laughs> and uh, doing other body movements that are not normal parts of everybody's days. Yes, so this is a musical... And uh, we got Alexandria back. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me back. You're welcome. And um, I, I guess all around movie expert, uh, Patrick, from uh, a bunch, whole, whole bunch of stuff. I can't. Yeah, <laughs> too many podcasts, to be honest. Um, hi, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, you were on our episode uh, on um, Kenneth Anger, and yeah. you have like a couple more coming up after this too yeah i'm excited about those as well um but i was especially uh, excited about th- this one because i this is a movie that uh i i hold near and dear to my heart okay so uh i mentioned this was a musical this is another pre-code musical and uh, i don't know why i put so many pre-code musicals on the list but i just kind of end up doing that and uh yeah so far i like i like them Except for, I guess, Madam Satan, which is a weird case of, I don't know if it's a good movie. <laughs> it's it's an interesting movie. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, so this is a, a Footlight Parade. I never heard of it until, um, who was it? Amanda. Uh, she's on the show a lot. We asked her last season, you like pre-code stuff. Can you recommend a bunch of pre-code movies for us? And this was one one the one she said. So I went to it like, well, Amanda liked it, so there must be something special about it. And uh, I, I enjoyed this movie. I can't say I loved it, but I really, really liked it. But uh, J-Dog, uh, had you heard of this movie before Amanda told us about it? Only so much that um, I'm kind of aware of, more aware of James Cagney's career because of... Uh, Secret History of Hollywood. I think that was one of the last ones I actually listened to was the, like, all about Cagney's career and how he started all dr- dramata. What, what, what is the word I'm looking for? With dramatized trip. See, I could be laying on the floor. Anyways, um, yeah. so I knew that he was a you know, a dancer, a showman, a singer, and all that stuff like that before he got into film. And I think most people associate, like, just the name with, like, a gangster movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this came, This is the movie that he did before Yankee Doodle Dandy. And the first movie where he was allowed, I guess, to actually show off his dancing skills. And I wish it had been more a movie about his dancing skills than anything else. I just... I, for some reason, movies about making shows or making movies or blah, 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 how things are, things are changing and stuff like that. They, they bother me and it's a personal (laughs) thing. I just like, I don't know. It feels like Hollywood. Turn to a, this going to be a therapy session. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Every one of our episodes is a therapy session. Patrick, would you agree with that? Uh, so far, I, I, I haven't heard some of the unreleased ones yet, but yeah, so far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. 
the other thing I don't like, and it, I mean, I'm not going to jump around the movie or anything like that. Just, mm-hmm. just the, my, my two chief complaints that mm-hmm. both are, bo- both are just personal preferences. I don't like it when the entire thing is about like, we're putting on a stage show again, we're putting on a stage show and then they show a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I totally know why they're doing that. It would be stupid to actually just film a stage show if those are the things that are going out of popularity because it's a movie and they're going to show off movie stuff. So I'm just being silly. But I mean, I'm not making a joke. I'm just a silly person in general. I can confirm. I I did hang out with you for a week. Yep. uh, A month or two ago. I think this movie is kind of making a joke when it cuts to by a waterfall and then it cuts back to an audience who applauds as if any of that could possibly have happened on the stage. (laughs) Like I kind of, there's some Busby Berkeley sequences in some of these movies where you get, you certainly Busby Berkeley does not care about the reality of the film or the plot or the story. None of that was his concern. He was only doing the dance sequences. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I feel like, by the time you get to Footlight Parade, which is the third Busby Berkeley movie or movie that Busby Berkeley worked on for Warner Brothers that came out in 1933, the uh, screenwriters and the directors are kind of in on the joke because Busby Berkeley is the one people are going into the theater to see. He, it's his musical numbers that are sort of re-energizing the whole genre. And like, I think that that is, that is intentional by this point. Hmm. I can see well, that. Yeah. Yeah, to uh, uh, jump back for a second. So, um, Alexandria, uh, had you seen or heard of Footlight Parade before? Uh, um, yeah, so when you brought it up, it didn't ring a bell until I started watching it. And I remember, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, James Cagney was in this. And I just never seen it. I'd never seen it before. It was my first time watching this. And um, the only other film I've seen with James Cagney was like, The Public Enemy. So this was a pretty interesting film to kind of dive into and to see him perform. Um, I was looking him up and yeah, he had a background in vaudeville and Broadway before he got into like the gangster films and he wanted to kind of break away from that when he campaigned for this part. And um, I was actually really intrigued by him. I was really intrigued by by the role. I was intrigued by, of course, like the dance numbers. Um, So I'm not surprised that this was going to have like one of those showstoppers and I kind of have to agree with Patrick. I mean, like, there's no way mm-hmm. that shit's going to be on the <laughs> on stage. <laughs> but I'm actually glad, like, how it's just how it's presented. Clearly, it's for the audience, like, the moviegoers to watch the spectacular number. And I thought that was a beautiful, I thought it was actually a, uh, that was a beautiful musical number. So this was a joy to watch. Um, I'm not really a fan of the pre-code musicals all that much. Um, I feel like that's, like, a required taste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I am always there for the musical numbers and the costumes and um, yeah. So yeah, this was actually was an interesting film to watch. Okay, and Patrick, how did what's your history with this movie? Because you, you picked this one. Yeah, um, there was a I think it might have been a pre-code matinee series that was happening at the Music Box, which is sort of the preeminent art house theater in Chicago. Um, and I saw Gold Diggers of 1933, which I had never heard of before. I just mm-hmm. sort of saw it sight unseen. And the very first thing you see, and this was, you know, on the big screen in a mm-hmm. movie palace that was built in the 30s, is just like the camera zooming into Ginger Rogers' face as she starts mm-hmm. singing, We're in the Money in Pig Latin. And it was one of the most delirious things I had ever mm-hmm. seen in a movie. 
and it's a you know it's a movie with busby berkeley musical numbers and so there turned out to be a whole lot of very delirious things going on uh in that movie and it's also like a very fun body sort of sex comedy about these women trying to manipulate men into uh funding their broadway show um that i also enjoyed but from that i was sort of hooked and i knew i needed to see more busby berkeley i got this big dvd box set that had like six or seven of his movies and i just sort of went through it and footlight parade was always the one that was really special to me because footlight um a lot of these movies again at a certain point busby berkeley was directing the whole film but um i would say like the height of his career he was only doing the musical numbers and Footlight Parade feels like the only one of those movies where the delirium of the musical numbers is kind of matched by the stuff that happens in between them. And it's just because James Cagney puts on like one of the most manic performances I've ever seen in a movie. He is just nonstop running around and screaming and yelling and dancing and going, no, 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 this is this. And then we got to do this. And then we go, da, 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 da. And then it's, it's like one of the most... Uh, just exciting physical performances I've ever seen. And and then uh, I, you know, I read a biography on Busby Berkeley, who's an extremely fascinating figure uh, who kind of lied and uh, conned his way into becoming like the most important person in musical history, perhaps not. I mean, no, that is there's certainly, um, you know, he, uh, Zigfield maybe had something to do with it, but uh, he's right up there and um, he had no formal training of any kind. So the other thing about this movie I love is that it captures it at this point, Busby Berkeley again, did not write the script, did not direct the movie. The only thing he did with James Cagney was the final musical number where James Cagney is playing a role of a sailor. He's not playing the role of the director. So uh, you can't necessarily credit this Busby Berkeley, but it is a movie about Busby Berkeley. And the more you know about his life and the way he worked, the more you realize that everything about that James Cagney does in this movie is just like a tribute to him. Um, and so this movie just feels like all of a piece and very special and it co sort of comes together in a way a lot of these other ones did not. Yeah, um, like I, I kind of go off that like Buzzy Berkeley is a name that as like once I started learning about movies and getting into movies, it's a name I kept hearing and coming across over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I saw uh, Gold Diggers of 1933 that I finally saw like his work and i was blown away by it and uh yeah like us uh, like uh, uh joel alexandra can, can you guys remember the first time you guys heard of busby berkeley not really honestly um i had to look him up actually for this particular oh. episode but i like if i i may not heard the name but i may have seen like clips from films he probably worked on like girl crazy and um i know annie get your gun and a couple others but it's like a name that kind of comes in and out, you know? No idea. Not not even one clue. All right. Uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, Patrick, who, who, you kind of alluded to it already, but who exactly was Busby Berkeley? So Busby Berkeley was a man who grew up sort of in backstage and show business. His mother was a very successful stage actor, uh, had a less successful career in Hollywood, but did appear in films. Um, as a young man, he ran off to the army to be part of World War I, which was a very exciting prospect in a world before the Great War happened. You still sort of thought of war as something that a young man does to go on and have an adventure. Um, while he was in the war, 
he was assigned with the task of running marches and the task really bored him. So he made everybody march in really weird patterns and that impressed his superiors who then sort of shipped him all, all around France to uh, arrange these marches for all these different regiments and stuff. From there, uh, he used his mother's connections to like stage musicals uh, by the, uh, you know, by, by the war side, you know, for, for the troops. Um, from there, he had a career in Broadway. Again, uh, he he had no formal training of any kind. He was not a dancer. He didn't know anything about dance. Uh, if you watch his movies, you can kind of tell. It's some sometimes you see some good tap dancing, but generally speaking, the choreography is not about any individual person doing anything interesting with their body. Um, but he sort of just uh, conned his way into an extremely lucrative career as one of the most exciting. Um, choreographers in Broadway at the time. Um, Eddie Cantor, a uh, very big Broadway star, uh, had a uh, contract uh, over in Hollywood. I, for, I forget for what studio, but he said, oh, Busby Berkeley's a name I've been hearing a lot about. He should do the musical numbers for my movie. So that was how uh, Busby Berkeley ended up going to Hollywood. And uh, he was just this sort of alcoholic. He was a workaholic. Um, in today's terms, if you were going to pathologize him, you might say he was bipolar or uh, manic depressive. He certainly had a lot of um, mental health issues. Um, you know, I, I'm, he's, a, he's like a, incredible what he achieved. He's also kind of a monster. He was a guy who was a serial uh, philanderer with the women who were in his choruses. He kind of just plucked wives out of choruses. He was married six times or something like that. Uh, he killed three people in a drunk driving accident. So I don't want to, wow. I don't want to just like present a sunny, like, oh, what a great man. What a, you know, what a capital G, capital M, great man. Like he was very complicated and in some ways monstrous, but the things he achieved uh, on film um, and, and, uh, and sort of how he changed in some ways the way people thought about the format and people thought about uh, depth and, uh, all of these sorts of things, I, I do think he is an extremely important figure nonetheless. Hmm. So he's kind of like, well, like the drunk driver thing is kind of like Matthew Broderick. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because he, he still had a career afterwards. So it is a lot like Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, listeners, in case you're wondering, Matthew Broderick, uh, drunk driving, uh, killed a couple of people in the 80s, I think it was. Must have been the 80s. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those things that doesn't come up a whole lot, but it's one of those weird things like, yeah, yeah, it happened. It's anyway, but uh, yeah, so um, uh, so we mentioned Buzzy Berkeley, who did the musical numbers in this, but the actual director is Lloyd Bacon and from what I can tell Lloyd Bacon like I hadn't seen any anything he's he directed but I haven't seen much of like 30s 40s era Hollywood in general but like was he a big name uh or anything or was he just kind of like a guy who was who worked at the studio I, I he is more the latter um he is not considered one of the sort of great directors of that era um, Mervyn Leroy, uh, of, of who was also working for Warner Brothers at that time is probably the person associate. He, he's the director of Gold Diggers of 1933. 
Um, like he is a legitimately like important, great director. He did. I am a fugitive of a chain gang and films like that. Um, uh, Lloyd Bacon's more of like a work for hire kind of a guy. Um, and if you look at the three films that Busby Berkeley made for Warner Brothers in 1933, 42nd Street, Gold Diggers in 1933, and Footlight Parade, uh, it's very clear that Lloyd Bacon was the lesser of the directors. Yeah, I've only seen Gold Diggers, but uh, yeah, that's compared comparatively, Gold Diggers is a, a better directed movie. But uh, yeah, so um, so so first off, uh, Alexandria Joel, what what did you like about Footlight Parade? Um, one thing I really enjoyed about the film was actually it was mainly it's James Canley's performance. I really enjoyed watching him. It's so different to see him not play a gangster. And so the fact that he jumped on his role to kind of make him stand out and kind of show off his dancing skills was actually more eye-opening for me. I really enjoyed like um just like his this is the energy of his performance honestly. Like I didn't think he could play such a character. So this was that was fantastic. And um, yeah, like I said before, like the musical numbers, like it's, it, I don't really like pre-code musicals are so foreign to me still. And it's coming from someone who actually really does enjoy musicals, but to see like like it's um, it, like, just 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 enjoy like just how much work goes into those musicals at the time is what stunned me the most. So that's what I really enjoyed about the film. J-Dog. I like strong female characters and like this is my particular favorite kind, the kind with the wry humor, sarcasm, uh, tough as nails, that kind of thing. Um, what else? I mean, a lot of the jokes did actually work for me just fine. Uh, it was mostly the character actors doing their thing. Um, you know, the guy that's the, the dance director. Like every time, <laughs> I loved him. <laughs> yeah, just wiping his brow, like oh. Yeah, that guy yeah. seems like someone who is uh, a Looney Tunes character, mm -hmm. almost parodying Looney Tunes. Oh yeah, yeah. And the uh, the two other money guys at the theater, I guess. Um, they were, you know, the one that kept would say something like kind of negative, but the others would mm -hmm. jump off it as if he was like, "Yes, we totally agree." Uh huh. Oh, mm -hmm. or or whatever. That's why we need to do this. That'll never work. It's brilliant. Um, and usually, like, not all of that worked for me because I have I have a hard time with the whole, um, what's that kind of dialogue? Screwball? Yeah, the kind of screwball fast stuff. Slow down your screwball. That's, that's all I'm asking before you throw it directly at my forehead. Well, uh, like, well, uh, not yet, but like post-code, code era, you kind of had to talk fast to get into dirty jokes. Well, yeah. If you talk fast enough, the censors won't, won't know what you're saying. It kind of felt like the, what they were doing here also. Yeah. yeah, but this is 1933. It was, I think, coming into effect. They were taking it a yeah. little more seriously. I mean, it wasn't, point. that's what I'm saying. It wasn't the Wild West, you know. It was yeah. like, it, it was a studio probably trying to look respectable in some way. Yeah. But, uh, well, like, well, one thing I love about this movie is Joan Blondell. Oh, yeah. She yeah, is one of my favorite classic Hollywood actresses. Uh, I, I first saw her in a Twilight Zone episode that is kind of subpar, but uh, she's really good. And since then, like, she's someone that 
I, I've, I have watched like a couple like older, probably would classic Hollywood era stuff just because she was in it. And I love her, like, her, I don't know, I just love her presence. I love everything about her. She's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I have nothing much more to say besides that. I just always love seeing Joan Fondell and stuff. And um, a little connection to Gold Digger of 1933 is Billy Barty. Mm-hmm. Who, um, yeah. <laughs> I liked him. <laughs> yeah, he, he's, in, he's in Willow. He's in um, the Lord of Rings from the 70s. Aeroscope footage. He, he's a, a, I think, I want to get this right. I'm, I, I'm not sure if he was a dwarf or a little person. Masters of the universe. Yes. He he uh, he had dwarfism, okay. hypoplasia, uh, cartilage hair, hypoplasia, dwarfism, according to Wikipedia. Unfortunately, I don't know all the distinctions, but it it, it was a uh, dwarfism. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, he was like he was one of like one of the iconic like actor like dwarf actors, the little person actors, and just seeing him so young in this and uh, it's just like man uh, this guy like i don't know how he got in show business but he's been show this for a very long time yeah yeah also shout out to billy barty uh for founding the little people of america organization he was like someone who was very early on like uh fighting for the rights of people with dwarfism and like fighting for better roles and uh for you know more dignity and, and things of this nature and like uh, there's not not that there's like a ton of dignity to go around in his performance in this movie, it's, but but like he was still like he he was still uh, even off screen uh, a very important uh, actor. Yeah, I, um, I think I was on Grindbin a few years like maybe four or five years ago or something. One I guess, uh, something was that like a Comic Con thing and met him, and like not not like like a, at like at the con part like at a party or something. And he was apparently very like salty and vulgar and and not in a good mood at the time. <laughs> so this would have been like mid nineties or so. So it was kind of later in life for him. But uh, yeah, I, I love hearing that. But uh, yes, uh, but uh, this yeah, and the scene look. And although in Gold Diggers, he is like a pervy little guy in the in the in that one number where he's like peeping on ladies. But here he's just kind of, he's the mouse. And in our, when I saw a mouse, I was like, oh, I think it's him. He's back. <laughs> uh, Busby Berkeley was all about sensationalism. And and uh, Billy Barty is just so, such a memorable on-screen figure. His face and his, his performance, his expressions, everything. Like, it just leaves such a big impression. It's no uh, surprise that he brought him back. Yeah, he's a joy to watch on screen. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and Joel, you mentioned Masters of the Universe. He's uh Gwildor. I think that's right. I don't know. I need a mirror to look at my tattoo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh yeah, so like the like this wasn't as like uh, so far, pre-code stuff. I am always expecting it to be not like uh, vulgar or anything. I, I expect it to be like a little more risque. And compared to the pre-code stuff I've seen, this is not as pushing things. Mm-hmm. But also, I 
Uh, I can also think of it. It probably was since it was 1933 and the code was kind of being taken seriously. They're probably like, let's hold back on some of this stuff maybe, but, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's so like you have the little, uh, gay joke where the, uh, dance instructor is dancing with Dick Powell and they're sort of like holding each other, um, singing their song together but like you don't really have the sort of uh prancing day gay character that you do in uh gold diggers and in 42nd street the character who is like the uh who is the sort of the director of the musical he is just coded as gay at a certain point he's just like i'm depressed come over here and cuddle me to his like male coworker. <laughs> like uh that 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 is that that they get a little pushing more boundaries here i think i think here it's more that like uh some of the costumes uh like in bio waterfall they're they're wearing these swimming costumes that make them look like they're nude um the that whole sequence to me just feels like one big like smutty sex joke where it's they're basically creating like the sperm and the ovum (laughs) in that pool in those overhead shots um and also just some of the costumes in Shanghai Lil, like mm-hmm. some of the uh, like plunging necklines on those are like unbelievable, <laughs> especially when James Cagney's yeah. wandering through the opium den. You're like, wow, I can't believe that there, this isn't even nude because it's just like so much is exposed. There was also like references to like prostitution as well. Like the, even yeah. though it's pre-code, it's like, it's still pushing boundaries, which I got to give a lot of respect for. <laughs> Um, yeah, in 1933, it wasn't so much that uh, the Hayes office necessarily had much power, mm-hmm. um, but they were uh, fighting individually, re- regionally, city to city with every individual city's censors, which is there's a character in this movie who is, you know, reminding him like, oh, you can't do that number. They're never going to deal, you know, they're never going to deal with it in Sheboygan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the reality was depending on where you saw this movie, it would be cut differently um, you know, sometimes it's just like the projectionist job to, to, to cut, uh, you know, and so you would get these really hacked up versions in, in certain markets. Um, and so they, but there was also like increased pressure from the Catholic League of Decency and all of that, uh, um, that was then fueling those local censors, which then was uh, inspiring decisions by the studios and, and what they would uh, try to get away with. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, the end of thought there. But um, well, one thing I kind of have to bring up about this was the, the references to uh, black people were just like, I knew I knew to expect it to be not uh, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, like the, the part where, I forgot where, where Cagney is, but he's like, he's like, uh, uh, yeah, we have a beautiful tribes women, but the women blackface, and it's like, Jesus Christ. Uh, well, specifically a slavery number. <laughs> slavery, there we go. It was just like, Jesus fucking Christ, already. I, I just Remind people um, the good old days with slavery. <laughs> and, that's, and, that, and that is not a joke where they're saying, oh, that's so outrageous, because we don't end up seeing that. So you might like interpret that as being like, oh, well, the joke is that he's so out of ideas that he's picking something that's deliberately provocative that they would never do. In fact, the very next movie Busby Berkeley worked mm-hmm. on was Eddie Cantor's film Roman Scandals, which had a slave market sequence Mm. um so like i I don't think there was blackface i think they actually cast black actors for that one but like that was the era and their race in general in this movie Mm. is is 
kind of fascinating because obviously Shanghai Lil, there's a lot of yellow face going on. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, there's a part where the, the inspiration for the waterfall sequence was he sees black children playing by a fire hydrant. He's like, white women jumping in a pool. It's like, uh, okay. That is, that to the black. <laughs> oh, sorry. You go. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that to me is like the most fascinating moment because you might, it, it, in, in a different movie, in a different era, you could take that as like a very pointed criticism of like, this is what Hollywood does. They take black lives and, and black cultures and then they whitewash it and then they change it into something that is palatable for racist audiences and they eliminate the the people who inspired it in the first place. That's not what's happening here. That is, this is just an example of that. But it's still a fascinating moment where he is just seeing archival footage of black children playing in a fire hydrant because it's the summer and it's hot out. And he's just like, I want to see the water pouring on white bodies. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Sam McHattie is uh, in this movie as the porter at the Honeymoon Hotel. He's, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Sam McDaniels. He's Hattie yes. McDaniels' older brother um that's that's also like not a great role <laughs> you know it's it's the kind of role he did a lot of and you know he that's that's the career he had and he got a career so good for him but uh the across the board um you know ruby keeler who plays shanghai lil at the end in that final sequence like she was al jolson's wife like she's literally mrs al jolson <laughs> um that is the world we are in um and yeah. it's it's worth pointing a, out for sure yeah it's just a thing i know to expect but still every time it happens i'm like god damn it yeah this kind of bumps me out a little bit but yeah. uh, alexandria your thoughts on of on like the black stuff that kind of cropped up in this oh god um i listen anytime i see a film that says 1930 so i i i will always expect something against black people and there's not much i can go further than that um what really at the one particular part that really stood out for me was um the black man that was like dancing and singing i forget which part of the movie and just like watching him move and dance it didn't feel like natural to me and so i was still feeling like okay are we still well it's 1930 and it's you know they have that um you know that jim crow era type of menstrual presentation of uh of black people so it's uh, and you know like what can i say <laughs> you know whenever <laughs> this this occurs and i'm like well it's the 1930s and you know there's not much but, that can be said there <laughs> but it, but it should be said like this is also warner brothers this is supposed to be like the socially conscious uh <laughs> activist studio um <laughs> You know, like yeah. these are the these are the people who who are who are making the movies that are you know taking on the liberal issues. They're like super heavy Roosevelt New Deal people. Mm -hmm. um, and even the previous film, uh, Gold Diggers of 1933, uh, Etta Moten is in that movie. Uh, she has this really amazing vocal solo. She sort of uh, originated a role in Porky and Bess, and that in that movie she's not a, a, a maid. Uh, mm -hmm. In that musical number, she is just like a woman in this sequence the way all of the other women in the sequence are. Um, and, you know, that's that's Mervyn Leroy. That's I don't know if that's his choice or if that just, they, she just happened to be the right singer for the job. But like, it's it wasn't a foregone conclusion necessarily. You know, you, you shouldn't necessarily let a movie off the hook just because it was the 30s because there were, you know, it, 
there's other movies where they didn't do that, but this of is course. a movie where they failed to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's just, there's just some things, like, once I see black people being presented in a particular way, it's like, I'm, I would have to be extra patient, you know, but, you know, yeah. considering the era and the, the time and how black people were treated, it's like, you know, I'm not surprised. But, of course, not every movie at that time treated black people like that. I'm just saying. It's just the presentation of, like, when I noticed that black man dancing, it felt very, like, minstrel to me. So I was like, yeah. oh, uh, that didn't sit well. But, you know, um, it's like, there's not much I can expect <laughs> from uh, for something like that. So that, 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 that's the only thing that made me kind of shake my head. But then I'm like, okay, let's just move on from that. Ben, uh, you mentioned Warner Brothers being the socially conscious studio, <laughs> but uh, Jack Warner famously, uh, when he found out Chester Hines, the writer of the Harlem Detective novels, he, uh, a black uh, uh, fiction writer, once he found out Chester Hines was hired to be a, a screenwriter uh, for Warner Brothers, he had him fired. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was saying that a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, yeah. <laughs> Because it is, it, they, you know, it is still Hollywood, it, you know, yeah. um, and they and they posture as one thing, but of course, then you see the failures they do, and this is like, again, it's one of those things where you 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 actually ask, uh, you know, di different people. It's not like, oh, no one knew it was racist, you know. It's like you you go back to you know blackface and you know the history of Broadway and everything. Like plenty of people knew that it was, you know, not even not even just black folks like there was plenty of white audiences who are like boy blackface is really makes me uneasy um at the time uh and and in this case uh shanghai lil was a number that sort of drew the ire of the chinese consulate of los angeles and warner brothers assured them like don't worry we're going to show you that sequence before the movie comes out because we're so confident that you're going to be cool with shanghai lil and you realize there's nothing racist uh towards chinese people in that sequence that that will just show it to you and then in that will assuage your fears and then when they saw the sequence they were like you know what uh that's not ready we couldn't we couldn't show it to you sorry <laughs> they went back on their promise because they were like sort of sheepishly like actually this is really racist did you see that opium den <laughs> yeah uh, j-dog any thoughts on on this stuff um well one of the things that I thought was, I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. So I'll just say, what? <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, okay, so so the scene you were talking about where the uh, the kids are out playing mm -hmm. and the fire hydrant, it, it's so funny that like it didn't even occur to me what he was saying at the time was what, you know, was racist or, or not racist because I, he said white people getting wet and then it shows all the white people on the sidewalk like with their arms crossed like we're not going to do that kind of thing is is what my brain went with yeah. so just wasn't looking for a conflict but i like shanghai a little yeah i mean whew. yeah that's oh, yeah. yeah it's a good number but jesus christ it's just like yeah 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 this is sure old hollywood right here yeah mm -hmm. uh, i didn't even like the number but you know like I've been complaining about everything else, but like how many times does the lyric have to say Shanghai Lil, Shanghai Lil, Shanghai <laughs> In general, the musical numbers in these movies kind of are, they don't, the musical numbers themselves don't suck at all. The songs in these movies really suffer mm -hmm. from 
basically having one melody repeated four times and that's the verse and then there's like one melody repeated twice and that's the chorus um like sitting on a backyard fence is legitimately like one of the fucking worst songs i've ever heard in my life <laughs> <laughs> um there's some you know some of these movies I, th I think we're in the money is legitimately good song i think uh 42nd street is a good song a shuffle up to buffalo is a good song bio waterfall is a has a nice melody to it um as repetitive as it gets um but like in general the songs themselves are not very good in these movies yeah, i kind the, of the enjoyed music. them though oh, oh. i kind of enjoyed the songs <laughs> i did except for the shanghai leo was like oh okay we're gonna just yeah it's like, yeah that's racist as heck, as heck but um sitting on the backyard fence okay maybe it's not the favorite but i did enjoy the cats in that one uh, I did. oh yeah, yeah no the number itself like again just totally deranged yeah deranged. i was all for it <laughs> I was Billy so running around in a mouse costume like a giant milk bottle like oh my god it's incredible like they had a blast they had must have had a blast like i loved how big and like grand that whole set was and the and the costume pieces but yeah it's a silly song if i had i mean other than that um yeah, the waterfall one was like just fantastic. By the um, by, the waterfall was just beautiful. And actually, honeymoon hotel, I thought that was pretty catchy. I I, I, yeah. I enjoyed the melody in that one. I did. Yeah, I enjoyed that one, uh, but but more because like it was just a whole, a, it was just an elaborate sex joke drawn out for like five minutes. <laughs> but uh, what was it? The, I saw that like that one and um, waterfall one. Both end on a shot. Of, uh, the honeymoon one ends on a shot of a baby, or like a picture of a baby, or it's like, oh, they're gonna fuck now. Another one ends on a shot of birds, baby birds in a nest, and it's like, oh, get it? It's sex, and it's like really name like this is what the song was about the whole time. I didn't get that. Oh, you did. <laughs> I assume that picture of a baby was somebody's relative, and those birds, you know, they're just birds. Come on. No symbolism. How dare you? That that uh, bio waterfall sequence that took you know obviously it took like weeks and weeks and weeks to shoot. Some of those shooting days went on for thirty two hours straight. Where like oh. <laughs> like I would like and like when I talk about like Busby Berkeley also kind of being a monster, I mean like you he just has like 40 women in like waist high water like standing there for just seven hours as he like tries to figure out exactly how to position them and they just have to like take it and you know get hypothermia or whatever um like there was there's plenty of uh stories about like people getting injured or people getting dehydrated or people getting exhausted trying to make uh these musical sequences happen um like you have that sequence of the women they he this was a classic busby berkeley thing the parade of faces because it was like the thing mm -hmm. you can't do on broadway is have a some a woman come right up to you and look you in the eyes so he would have these women sort of run past the camera and look at you in the eyes and um like them coming out of the water with their eyes open smiling at you like it's chlorinated water and they have to do this over and over and over again for hours just all this water getting in their eyes like it was it was brutal <laughs> to get this movie made um for them obviously no less so for the for the people in charge um 
but it is it is like absolutely gorgeous the end result uh i get to um Oh, so uh, I kind of look back around to um, James Cagney and his performance, uh, the way how like how manic it was, how energetic it was, how like uh, basically he was screaming the whole time. It, this feels like Am Sandler and um, Uncut Gems type <laughs> energy of just like he's high stress, he's he's like he's never chill, and uh, you know. It's, yeah, it's just like very much that kind of like Sassy Brothers, like intense, stressful energy. Yeah, it worked for me because I felt like, yeah, you got to deliver on this. <laughs> and like the stakes were high, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah but, uh, oh, um, Patrick, I didn't get, the, get this part yet, but um, what, what's your history of musicals in general? Um, You know, so I had a lot of... Uh, internalized homophobia uh growing up uh so like i had there's a lot of things that i just sort of knee-jerk rejected because they weren't for boys or they weren't masculine enough and of course that was like me as a bisexual child like desperately afraid of being a bisexual child and just being like gross musicals so like i grew up with the disney movies of the 90s the way pretty much anyone of my generation did but i very much avoided uh musicals for most of my life until i was like in my 20s and I mean, I was in, uh, I was an actor in like a children's theater or whatever. So like I had done a couple musicals, but I always was like very reluctant. And I, I like doing comedy more than I like singing and dancing and stuff. Um, but then like once I got to my 20s and I was trying to actively expand my uh, interest in movies, I was seeing things like uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers or, uh, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis and or, you know, Gold Diggers of 1933. And I was just having my mind expanded to like, oh, the musical is sort of cinema. Like the, <laughs> like the musical number with the really great dance sequence. But, you know, when you look at the, the ballet at the end of An American in Paris or things like that, like that is just like the, the height of cinematic achievement in cer some certain ways. And I would be like a fool to discount. And uh, so I, I got more into it. And uh, but that, that came later for sure. Okay. Um, Rachel, have, we, have I asked you uh, on an episode yet, your history of musicals at all? Um, my history like, with musicals. Yeah. The, I know where, you're not the biggest fan. When I was 17? No. Uh, <laughs> year, uh, well, I used to watch Mary Poppins a lot when I was a kid. Is that what you wanted? <laughs> I don't know. Like, do, do, do you like them? Like, what's your what's your deal? That's a difficult question to answer. I think I'm fifty fifty when it comes to it. Like, I watch a musical I like. I watch a musical I don't like. That seems to happen. Like, when I get a musical I like, I'm very pleasantly surprised. Uh, but musicals, especially, I don't I don't like the idea of taking joy away from people who enjoy them. So. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to turn one down. I'm never going to say, that's stupid. Why do you like that? Except for to myself. Self-abuse. That's okay. Um, so I don't know. Okay. The cheesier it is, the less I like it. But also, no, there's no answer. There's no answer. Sorry. No answer? Okay. You want to know my favorite oh. musical of all time? Is it Hedwig? Yeah, it's Hedwig in the range. <laughs> that's a good one. You know, so one, like, my least favorite musical of all time? Is it Dancers in the Dark? No. Oh. 
It's just depressing. There's nothing wrong with the musical. Oh, okay. What is it? I don't remember. Oh, okay. Yeah, anticlimactic. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to say something go controversial, say like CN or Rain or something like that. Yes, that's my least favorite. No. Okay. No. That's a good one. See, you name a good one. All right. But, uh, yes. Um, like, one thing, well, I, like, on musicals, in, on musicals in general, like one thing that, like watching this made me like really think about was like the difference, because like the, the, the I think I, there seem to be two different types that I've mainly seen, which is the ones that are, it's a, it's a, like they're putting on a show, they're putting on a play, and that's like the musical numbers, and then there's like stuff like uh, Wizard of Oz where it's more not organic to the world, but like it's there's no like we're putting on a show angle it's a saying like this is a story in the world and uh like it's more diegetic uh, yes okay. yeah the, yeah those those are musicals that are where, like the the numbers are expressing something about the characters and their situation and their emotional lives or like the things that they wish their lives were um, whereas when you get to backstage musicals and things like that, the numbers themselves are kind of arbitrary. Um, and I think that that extends also to like, when you look at a musical number, like make them laugh in singing in the rain or whatever, you're feeling like, you know, who this character is. You, you, you like, you feel where he's coming from as an entertainer, what his philosophy is and what, as far as what his job is. Um, and it's and it all feels very organic, and it is very much about him, the performer, and his body, and how he moves, and the slapstick comedy he's doing, and things like that. It's the way he moves his body is the expression of the emotion. And when you get to a Busby Berkeley thing, you're sort of taking a step back and saying the only person who is being expressive is Busby Berkeley. He it's very authoritarian. <laughs> this idea of like arranging these just masses of people and not any one of them is really expressing themselves physically, but all put together, they are expressing something. Uh, they are expressing the director's will as opposed to like their character's will. Um, and I think like you can just say like flat, flat out, like it makes sense that the guy who started in the military <laughs> ended up creating musical numbers that are about that authoritarian uh, sort of impulse. Um, and uh and i think that i think it's why his numbers work well in the backstage musical but like this would not make any sense uh in a, in a movie where the musical numbers have to advance the plot no oh, yeah because like there's like I, I, I didn't really piece it together until watching this but like the the berkeley movies i have seen there's no individual like that like there's no individual like focus it's just like this is a unit they like in, the, in like the waterfall segments like the swimmers have to move as, as a unit to create this like beautiful like uh, uh like a kaleidoscopic image in the pool and like no one can be you know no one can stand out everyone has to work together and it's uh yeah uh yeah and, and even like he mentioned like the, the military thing and, and the last one has a whole like military march which feels like which you said, like, maybe that's probably autobi autobiographical, just to throw in, like, the whole military march angle at the end. 
for sure, for sure. But then also, it's like very Warner Brothers that the, that that RB regiment or that the group of Navy men uh, from above then form pictures of Roosevelt and the sort of New Deal Eagle, <laughs> which is like it's it's just like Democratic Party propaganda at a certain point randomly at the end of this movie <laughs> about a, a maniacal uh, musical director. So we. I remember we never even got to like what Footlight Parade is even like a, about like this. But uh, so Joel, what is the plot of Footlight Parade? You want to go into this now? I can just hear it's on. It's only oh. set to go off at like 78, so it must be hot in here. Um, sure. Let's see. I, I don't want to mess this up. I'm just going to read what they have on Letterboxd and do my uh-huh. usual colorful commentary. Climaxing Warner Brothers glittering parade of musicals. What does that mean? This is the last one. That's weird. A fledgling producer finds himself at odds with his workers, financiers, and his greedy ex-wife when he tries to produce live musicals for movie-going audiences. I guess. I mean, like, yeah, he's getting tripped up, but it seems like the whole company's getting tripped up. And uh, it's not just his ex-wife. And uh, that's enough. It's okay. about it's about James Cagney, who is the smartest, most creative, best man in the world that women cannot keep their hands off of, and uh, the production he puts on. And then there's this incredibly milquetoast white guy. Sorry if uh, anyone's a big Dick Powell fan in this movie. It was just like, <laughs> like I don't know, that homeless guy. Bring him in. Can he dance? Maybe. Okay, get in there. That's like, yeah. Or, or, you know what? Even worse, it, it's more like somebody, yeah, uh, to go with a popular Barbary theme, just inflated a Ken doll, put a hat on him, and pushed him out in front of the screen. <sighs> Don't you want to kiss me? I taste just like plain yogurt. <laughs> mm, plain. I always thought that smile he gives at the beginning of Honeymoon Hotel makes him look like Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I think that pretty much sums it up. Guess what? They succeed in the end. But it's all because James Gagne can actually dance and perform really goddamn well. Yeah, he's yeah. like a, a he's a real warm, like tough, uh, like not 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 a stereotype like theater people, but like he's like more gruff and tough guy for like a theater guy than I've ever seen portrayed in a movie, which was kind of like really amusing to see like this type of personality, like who's who's. You know, like he's kind of basically playing like a gangster type of persona to an extent, but he's also like, but I care about dancing, not killing people. <laughs> I like to think that he's like, he's a tough guy on the outside, but he's really a softy deep down, and that's okay. <laughs> he loves to sing and dance. Yeah, it felt like if you if if this were remade, like in the nineties, it would have been Joe Pesci. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Let me tell you, Joe Pesci has a body built to move. (laughs) The cursing would be out of this world. (laughs) I would love to see that. Ladies can't keep their hands off of his tiny, tiny head. (laughs) They're they're both short kings. That's true. That's true. James Cagney, not a lot taller than Pesci. I bet James Cagney is just, you know, the average five, between 5'7", five, you know, and 6 foot or whatever. No, he's like... It's just everybody else is wearing, you know, heels that get them all the way up there. And then, he's of like course, Spike. like I said, that, that piece of 
flavorless taffy is very pay <laughs> toll in comparison. It's, just, it's not a fair comparison. No, uh, Cagme is like Scorsese, Spike Lee sized. Oh, okay. Technically, is a short guy. Oh, Spike Lee, come here. I'm going to squeeze your little cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, uh, Spike would not like that. Oh, I, I figured. But I mean, you could do it to him. Maybe mm -hmm. Alexandra, maybe you couldn't, but uh, me and Joel could. <laughs> if you really wanted that. to, you could put your head, your hand on Spike Lee's forehead, and I mean, he would keep swinging and not be able to reach. No, but... swinging his arms. <laughs> <laughs> y'all, let y'all do that. <laughs> Ain't touching nobody over here. <laughs> Get one of those comically large nets that they. Uh, it used to catch dogs in and just swoop them up and carry them around, just scrambling to get out. I think that's a better idea. Yeah. I, do, I do think that uh, what you said about, like, James Cagney being, despite being, like, this Broadway producer, he is also, like, this tough guy. Like, I think that is one of the things that's very appealing about these musicals uh, that uh, Busby Berkeley did for Warner Brothers is that they were very Depression era where they felt very like they didn't feel like high society or when high society types show up they feel like the butt of the joke the characters we're rooting for feel closer to depression era audiences where they're kind of desperate and they kind of need something to work and somehow despite the, all of their talents they're not quite getting enough money that they need and like gold diggers in 1933 is really fun because like all of the women get to be like really uh you know street smart and have all of this uh kind of sarcastic dialogue um but like that was definitely like part of the the appeal of the era was that it is like what you get to by a waterfall and it's like the most spectacular beautiful lovely thing you've ever seen but all so in between that it is the world that you as someone who's you know living through the depression that you sort of recognize um in a way that uh with you know with is, re is really cool yeah because uh I found a uh, cult movies podcast talked about uh, a pre-code musical, I forgot which one, and they kind of got into like Warner Brothers, uh, I think Warner Brothers one, uh, ones were usually would acknowledge the Great Depression and MGM would not acknowledge the Great Depression. I can't remember which, which, which was which. Was it because it was real bummer? I don't know. Or if you like watch those old like more uh, Maurice Chevalier like uh, musicals, uh, like it's it's like a count and a countess, and it's like all European sort of globe trotters, and it, it is just like upper crust uh, tuxedos and champagne, like all the way down, um, in a way that obviously is a very appealing form of escapism, but uh, maybe a less convincing one than when you get to something like uh, Gold Diggers of 1933 or Footlight Parade. Yeah. The average plot of these movies was, honey, it's so great to be rich, but what are we going to do with these elephants? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the plot of uh, Madame Satan is, uh, we're super rich. Let's go to a party on a Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> what if we partied on a Zeppelin? That's not a plot. Oh, you'll see. <laughs> He's definitely a showstopper. 
Here, the escapist fantasy is what if someone who looked like Joan Blondell was madly in love with you and she kept making goo-goo eyes at you in every scene? (laughs) That's the main fantasy I'm escaping into when I watch this movie, Mm -hmm. is like just how she's mooning over James Cagney. I'm like, wow, (laughs) what a a fantasy that would be. Let's be real, who who wouldn't swoon over James Cagney? Let's be real here. That's true. No, I want uh, Joan Blondell swooning over me. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it any way I could get it. I will say that James this movie. Cagney. I will say this movie is missing one thing though, and that's the uh, that's the Siegfried that we saw from Madame Satan. Like for real. This definitely. Yeah, we need that. That needs to be in there. God, I'm not kidding. That, I want to see a movie with, with that scene somewhere. <laughs> is there a Buffy Berkeley musical with the Zeppelin? You know, it's 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 one of those things that by the time uh, he hit Hollywood, they they kind of went the way of the dodo. They, there's just mm. not oh like forget Busby Berkeley movie with a Zeppelin. Are there many movies with Zeppelins? We need <laughs> to bring that back. It's <laughs> not enough. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm making it known. Okay, <laughs> we're fighting for it. <laughs> <laughs> with a grand dance number inside, like we got to go all the way. Okay. Well, how else are you going to shoot those overhead shots <laughs> other than a sta- than a, uh, a an aircraft that can stay stationary? That's a, that's a Zeppelin, baby. That's that's what you got to use. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to bring up is that uh, at the at the um, part in Footlight where they end up doing a lockdown because uh, I'll say Joe Pesci. Uh, James Cagney realizes. <laughs> a, the... You're you're so lost in your version <laughs> Oh my god! Uh, the, the point where you realize someone is uh, you know leaking leaking like his scripts out, and like and there's and like the part when they're all the women are sleeping in the like in, in the one giant room. It's like if you like Suspiria, but like not uh, creepy, but just visually, so it feels like. I wonder if uh, Argento saw this movie. I mean, there's definitely the like, I, so, so like so many of these movies are like, why why is it fun to go backstage in Broadway? And like seventy percent of it is that you see women in various states of undress a lot of the time. <laughs> like like the appeals here are very are uh, are very base and vulgar um, across the board. And like yeah, all of the women having to like sleep over is definitely like the co-ed dormitory fantasy um, that Suspiria. It also does with maybe a little bit less lasciviously, um, but uh, that that that's definitely there. Yeah, and like I, I, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but like the comedy in this really for me really worked. Cagney is really funny. Blondell is really funny. Everyone's really funny, it, and it does the joke that the joke that like I associate with like '90s teen comedies and like 2000s teen comedies, where it's it's the girl with the glasses. And she takes off her glasses, and then suddenly, like the the guys are like, "Holy shit, she's beautiful!" <laughs> oh my god! And I, I, she's a secretary or something. I can't remember, but like the one with the glasses, when and Cagney sees her in a glass, he's like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! You can be in a show now." <laughs> the the uh, Ruby Keeler uh, again. And she plays Chang Hang Lil, Mrs. Al Jolson herself. Um, she is she is in all of these early uh, Busby Berkeley Warner Brothers movies, and her role like she's always surrounded by these like uh, tough talking uh, women who you know 
who have had to scrap to sort of make their way and survive. And she's sort of the innocent, and that's why she gets to always fall in love with Dick Powell, because he's like the other innocent, mm. and theirs mm. is like the squeaky clean, beautiful romance. And I think that was like their way of keeping her pure, is like, oh, she's like an intellectual girl, because she wears glasses. Yeah, I was gonna say something about Barbie movie, but I will not say that. But the glasses trope is a joke in that at some point. Um, anyway, yeah, but uh, uh, when you say like uh, Dick Powell's innocent, do you mean he's basic? Yeah, yes, <laughs> I, yes. I think I, I, I think Joel had had nailed it the first time. <laughs> he, he is yogurt. <laughs> Just a basic dude. <laughs> yeah. He gets the job done, and it's done just good enough. Mm. He just showed up. Yeah, Al- Albert's glue on a popsicle stick. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like uh, James Cagney, J Dog? Oh yeah, yeah, I like James Cagney. In this like movie, jo- it's like Joan Blondell in this. Yeah. This is actually my first Joan Blondell movie. Actually, I'm very familiar with the poster that she's, um, you know, the famous poster that she's mm-hmm. in. This is my first time seeing her in a film, actually. I was pretty impressed. Uh, yeah. yeah, a very long career. She mm-hmm. is a, a character actress that just pop up in like pretty much everything. Yeah, yeah, I've heard. I definitely heard of her, but uh, that was like my first time actually finding and um, watching a film with her. Yeah. Don't shame the guests. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Damn, this is your first Joe Blondell movie? That's embarrassing. <laughs> no, I have no shame whatsoever. Just be happy that I've heard of her name. <laughs> and the famous poster that she's on, so I'm good. <laughs> It'd be more embarrassing if I said this is my first James Cagney movie. That would be more embarrassing. Hmm. I'll get But it's not. Let me just check that real quick. <laughs> no, for uh, him, it was public enemy. Because I was like in a Gene Harlow phase. And I'm like, I want to see more of our films. I'm like, oh, okay, let's start here. <laughs> this is uh, Ragtime is the only other movie I've seen. Well, technically, he's in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, but not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, te- technically, yes, but. Exactly. It's footage. Yes. Yeah, so the, the stake out money, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, um, I forgot to mention earlier, but uh, Billy Barty was a a Mormon, and apparently he was a, his family. They were like active Mormons, and his son is like a, produ- a producer, director, person, kind of like behind the scenes stuff, and is an active Mormon. And I thought, what did he, did he produce the a Sound of Freedom or the Sound of Freedom? I'd hope not. That despairs of the party um, legacy. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, so um, is there anything that didn't work for me in this? Uh, I don't know. Maybe like the 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 uh, the plot stuff went on a little too long, but like I think that part of the Buzzy Berkeley stuff that I've seen so far is like you kind of gotta wait for the musical numbers, and like when they finally hit, you're like. Fuck yes, this is incredible. <laughs> At least for me, like the, the wait is always worth it. Even if I get a little tired, I'm like, well, it's gonna get good pretty soon. Just yeah. wait. 
<laughs> yeah. You, it's like you go to see the new Mission Impossible movie, you're going to see three scenes where Tom Cruise talks about how important his friends are, and you sort of squint, <laughs> and you go, Tom Cruise, I don't think friends are important to you. And then you see him drive a car down a set of stairs, and you're like, yes, that's important to Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth the wait. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh... Kind of, uh, so uh, uh, J Dog, uh, uh, I've like, uh, have you seen any, uh, any other pre code musicals or just like the only one you've seen? No, I don't know the answer to that question, I don't think. Well, you weren't on, what's the, in, you you weren't on the, whatever. Well, you were, you were not on the Madame Satan episode. I don't know if you watched that or not. Yeah, I watched it. Yeah, I would hardly call that a musical. I mean, because it's a, the it's end, early... the end sequence is, is just so much torture, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it, it's an early experiment. Like, how do you do a musical? That's, and that's why we don't have more movies with Zeppelins in them, because that, that Zeppelin go. my God. Because okay. they got it right the first time. I, I almost we can do went right back in time again. and hijacked the Zeppelin and crashed it into the set. <laughs> but we can recreate it again, so they need to, we need to get on this. Yes. Okay, we yeah, need we to. Have the technology. So, if we done it before, we can do it again. With, and this is send Joe me a Pesci link to the it. Kickstarter. I will do all I can. Okay, and, to, and, and get Joe Pesci involved too, because why not? Why not? Why not? He could dance and sing. We'll make. We'll we'll do a remake <laughs> of this. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, I'll say that uh, what I said. I'll read what I said on the Mam Satan episode. I would rather rewatch Mam Satan than watch the Ten Commandments ever again. <sighs> the the uh, Cecil, Cecil the Mill fifties version. Oh, oh I haven't okay. seen it. It's. Uh, I get into an episode. It's a movie my mom forced me to watch when I was younger, and fuck that movie. It might be good, but fuck that movie. It's uh, it's forty days and forty nights long. <laughs> <laughs> All right. and I think James Cagney is no Edgar G. Robinson is in that. And one what, what, one of those two dudes is in Brown Face in that movie. Edward G. Robinson. Okay. Yeah. Was anything else? Oh, I forgot to say it's a top episode. Trans rights or human rights. Uh, learn what your state is doing. Learn what the country is doing about this shit. Get involved. Uh, vote. All that shit. I meant to say it in the beginning, but I kind of forgot. Um, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And uh, yeah, so Footlight Parade is. A, oh, hey, oh, wait. Final thoughts. Anyone have final thoughts on Footlight Parade? Uh, this is a an enjoyable pre-code musical compared to Mad of Satan. No, I'll say that. This was way, way more enjoyable for me. And I do, actually, I recommend it if you're a fan of James Cagney. Uh, J-Dog, would you recommend this? I mean, if we're comparing on the curve of, made of Mad of Satan, then this is a good movie. I just, <laughs> no, it's 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 a fine movie. If you are, already know you're into this stuff, you're going to enjoy it, that's for sure. And um, I don't know. If you're like me, which I, I haven't met another me yet, you're probably out there. So go brush your teeth. Your breast smells. I will say that about Mad of Satan, like it's worth seeing just for the Zeppelin scene alone. But other than that, yeah, I recommend for like it, it's worth seeing to see the how they try to figure out how to do a musical. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Patrick, would you would you recommend um, Madam Satan? I mean, Full Eight Parade. <laughs> 
I would recommend Man Sa Madam Satan to anyone, but uh, the film I haven't seen, but there's this one dominatrix in Chicago who is excellent. And <laughs> if you could find Madam Satan, get her number. Uh, thumbs up. Um, Foot Light Parade, I, I certainly have recommended to many people. I think it, even if you are, you know, unfamiliar with pre-code films, I think that there is an energy to it and there is a momentum to it. And there is, uh, in, in its highest points, there is a uh, sort of spectacular sense of visuals that really, you know, uh, in, in the, you know, all the time since, like it's ver very rarely matched. Um, and uh, I think this is also good if you are curious about pre-code, this is a good example of a lot of things that were really cool and fascinating and fun and naughty about the pre-code era. And then also, as we've discussed, like a lot of things that were shitty, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, people talk about the Hayes Code and they talk about, uh, they talk about how, you know, it hamstrung filmmakers and stuff like that. One of the other aspects of the pre-code that's talked about a little less is that part of the Hayes Code was specifically, hey, you can't denigrate other people's nations and races. Now, does that mean every movie past the Hayes Code, uh, <laughs> you know, was suddenly not racist or anything? No, but you got, it was less brazenly racist. The Orientalism was toned down a little bit <laughs> um, past the pre-code era. And I, I think if you're interested in the history of film and the history of Hollywood and, and how Hollywood factors into the history of film and stuff like uh, seeing, seeing the ugly side of it is also part of that. And I think you, you get a full blown education uh, just across the board when you watch Light Parade. Okay. And yeah, this is 1933. Uh, I have, um, yeah, I have another one. No, just one movie. I, I, I had another one for a second. Anyway, so my recommendation for 1933 is a movie I think is more, I think it's just good. It's, it suffers us from like, it's very of its time, but Emperor Jones, the Paul Robeson movie. Um, it's, it's one of the few like Hollywood movies he, he actually got to be the star of, but just like the source material and it's just like it, it's trying to uh, some will be like this empowerment like black movie for the help for the time but it doesn't fully achieve that and like this i can't i can't remember exactly but there's details of it that, that, that did not stick well with me and it's more interesting to see like this was an attempt at trying to do a, a, like a more positive black per um uh oh, what's the word to look for uh performance um portrayal but it, it it doesn't fully land it's very of its time it, but it's but it's paul robeson so i i, rec I recommend anything he was in uh to to anyone he was a, a goddamn american hero in my opinion and uh should be celebrated even his lesser movies should be celebrated just because like he was a, such a fascinating individual that did so much good stuff you know there's emperor jones it's also like 70 minutes long so um if runtime is an issue for you it's it, it's over pretty quickly and that's it for me i mean should we just go down yeah okay whatever i can't remember what you two were gonna say 
but uh, I'm pretty sure neither of you said King Kong for some reason. No, <laughs> King Kong. Probably, probably, probably because it's a well-known movie that everybody's already seen, 1933. Right? I hadn't seen it until either this year or last year. And I, I sat myself down for something that was going to be interesting as a experiment, you know, as a, as a reference to history, because obviously effects have changed a lot since then. And just like practical effects now are, are such a special treat when we actually get to, or not practical, um, uh, what I'm talking about, miniatures, when, when you're specifically using miniatures for representations of action scenes and stuff like that, or entire movies, if we're lucky enough with stop motion, it's, it's really, uh, yeah, it's special. But uh, if you haven't watched King Kong, I'm just going to tell you that movie is so much more violent than I could have predicted. <laughs> you know, that like in the uh, Peter Jackson movie, you know, I think King Kong fights a, a T-Rex while they're still on Monster Island or, or what have you. And in the original movie, King Kong fights a T-Rex. And it goes on for a while, but the whole time you're just like, "Oh my God, King Kong, do you you have no honor? <laughs> you, you are a bad ape, man." <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and not just that, that all around. Like the movie kept my attention the whole time. I am ADHD crazy, especially right now. But it's long. It doesn't feel like it's long to me, at least. Uh, uh, the stop motion just like holds up so well. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. I know it's probably on everybody's list somewhere. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is, uh, well, I, I, I do want to mention Japanese Girls at the Harbor by Hiroshi Shimuzu. But the problem is I can't remember anything about the movie. But uh, apparently I loved it when I saw it. I mean, silent Japanese movie, I think. So subtitles make sense in that pit. No, no, I don't know what I'm going for. It's just, it, it was good. That's all I remember. It was very good. It's probably a criterion. But the, the real thing I want to mention as last thing was this is the year that the animated Three Little Pigs Disney card, you know, short came out. Anyone familiar? Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Exactly. Who's afraid of Virginia Wolf? I mean, uh, the big bad wolf. Just like, I don't know, those melodies from Walt Disney time period are just still so charming to me as long as they're not racist. <laughs> uh, oh, it, 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 take what you can get. I gotta tell you, early early animation is influenced by blackface minstrelsy. Well, let me tell you, all three of the little pigs and I think the big bad wolf are wearing white gloves for some reason. So Yeah, yeah it's still a nod to minstrelsy with the animation. Well, here's a question for you. Yeah. If the pigs did have hands, would you want to see them? Because, you know, they had to imagine what these pigs' hands look like. Like, they're probably wearing these gloves because they're grotesque, and they're like, I don't want their little sausage fingers touching me. Uh. So, so in your mind, it's their their hands would look like something from the island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. Or it's some horrible mutation in between human hands and hooves. Or, the, you know, that one scene in... Uh, Everything, everywhere, all at once. Like, it's on a weirder scale. Okay. No, um, it's racist. Anyways, I'll, I'll exaggerate. Okay, <laughs> I'll go next. So the first film I'm going to recommend is The Testament of Dr. Mabuza, directed by Fritz Lang. 
Professor Long, who I didn't want to pronounce it. Um, you may remember him as the director of Metropolis. And if you don't, please watch that movie after listening to this podcast. Okay, thank you. Um, so for those who don't know, um, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza is a sequel to Fritz Lang's silent film, Dr. Mabuza the Gambler, and is also one of his, um, I, I think the second film he's done with sound. Um, the story is basically about Dr. Mabuza. He's in an asylum and he's trying to come up with crimes and um, detectives try to stop him basically. It's just a, it's a crime thriller, but there are some supernatural elements in the film that are very, very interesting. So yeah, I kind of recommend the film uh, for its story and sound and uh, particularly the ghostly images that are on the screen. It's fantastic. And the uh, second film is one that I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, especially if you love the Universal Monsters. And that's The Invisible Man, directed by James Whale, and is based off H.G. Wells' no novel, which is the same title. Um, just a short gist of it, um, it's about a guy named Dr. Jack Griffith, who is covered head to toe in bandages, and has his sunglasses covering his eyes, and really underneath he's actually invisible because of a, a chemical experiment that happened and the film basically shows him trying to fix the reverse the formula and he goes insane in the process and it's awesome so yeah uh, i recommend that film and i also recommend the 2020 remake as well i'm gonna put that in there so it's a unique take on the story so whenever i think about the invisible man i think about both films so but yeah but those are my recommendations all right. Uh, Patrick, you next. Yeah, um, I certainly uh, second Alexander's two picks. Both those movies are incredible. Um, uh, I also went with a horror movie. In this case, I went with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Uh, we sort of talked on this episode about the identity that Warner Brothers had uh, as like the socially relevant, you know, their movies take place during the Depression. They're a sort of uh, cut rip from the head kind of uh, feel that their films had. Um, and, you know, the movies we were talking about that Buzzley Berkeley worked on sort of are like, well, what if you took that and then made a musical in that world? And Mystery of the Wax Museum um, is sort of like, what if you took that and then made a horror movie in that world? So it's this sort of gothic horror that takes place in a city following a reporter for a newspaper who's trying to get to the bottom of all these murders. Um, it is shot in two-strip Technicolor, which if you have never seen a two-strip Technicolor movie before, they are fascinating looking because uh, obviously black and white movies, they have black, white, and grayscale in between. Um, three-strip Technicolor, you're working with three different pigments, and so you can reproduce, uh, maybe not in the most realistic way, but you can reproduce most colors on the color wheel um, and sort of life as it exists in front of the camera. Two-strip Technicolor is only red and green, and so there's certain colors that you doesn't matter how you combine red and green, you just can't do yellow. You just can't do blue. Um, you can't do purple. And it is this very, very strange, like it ends up looking like angerness and kind of bruised. And for a gothic uh, kind of gnarly, violent uh, horror movie that you know has drugs and and has people bodies being embalmed and cover it in wax and and like all sorts of men or grotesque things uh like it's a really fascinating aesthetic and there it's it's another sort of example of how far pre-code went um some of the special effects 
uh, so be because they are they're sort of couched in the historical nature. It's they're like it's a wax museum that's all about like the most brutal and violent scenes in nature. Um, like the things that you see in this movie are absolutely wild. And uh, I it's directed by Michael Curtiz, uh, who you know he directed plenty of bad movies too because he just made so many uh, films. But Michael Curtiz is an excellent filmmaker, and this is one of the ones where he's kind of on. Um, and I, I, I really like uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum and Dr. X, which is the other two-strip Technicolor horror movie uh, that Warner Brothers made. They're both very special, very weird movies uh, in the way that like universal horror films have a very specific feel and they feel very like Germanic and European and they kind of have a vague sense of, it's like, does Castle, you know, does, uh, does Frankenstein take place in the 20th century or the 19th century? It's kind of hard to tell. Like, Mr of the wax museum is urban horror in the 30s and that's kind of fascinating and cool so that's my pick all right and uh okay so this will come out in the vague future i have a bunch of uh we're recording because i start school again and not that many in, in a month or so so i want uh yeah so um oh for me uh, uh stuff i do i wrote for grumpire a uh, film website i did a piece on uh what's the movie called um how do i not working uh uh story weather uh in june and then in may i had a piece on godfrey cambridge the actor and comedian and uh yeah so uh and i also write other stuff for them on occasion so uh this Go Grumpire. They have cool shit there. And I'm on podcasts sometimes. I was just on Movies from Hell talking about some action movies. So, uh, yeah, I, I got I appear on stuff sometimes. So, and <clears throat> J-Dog, you got stuff to promote? No, I don't. Do not. Never will. Can't imagine it. Okay. I mean, I'm going to be on this podcast, I guess, if you want to. You want to keep listening to me for some reason yeah and i i schedule and i'm scheduled to be on mustachio about castio again in the fall talking about um but it's a podcast on movies where the, the one rule is is there a mustache yes then you can cover it uh <laughs> my favorite scorsese movie um uh the king of comedy because i want to class up that pod podcast a little bit but uh yeah, so that'll be in the vague future, but we're probably going to have to reschedule because we always have to reschedule on that show. It takes a long time for some reason for me every time. Anyway, yeah, so uh, um, Alexandria, you got stuff? No, I got nothing to promote at this time. <laughs> I've been busy just doing some film projects for school, so yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, school is important. Keep doing the cool film shit. Thank you. I should be having a new reel up so I can have you guys see and let you all know I'm not there wasting money. <laughs> 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 I promise I'm not. And uh, Patrick, how, uh, you're last because you're a busy person. Oh, yeah. Um, I had a podcast that I'm still proud of and is still up and people should still check out called Uptown Song Club where uh, everyone 
uh, me and two guests would all bring in a song and we talk about them book club style and I would edit in clips of the songs as we talk about them. It's a really cool thing, honestly. And so uh, check out Uptown Song Club. Uh, I am technically the host of a podcast called Tracks of the Damned, where I do commentary tracks on horror films. I did a commentary track on Dr. X, which was one of the Michael Curtiz two-strip Technicolor 1930s Warner Brothers horror movies I talked about just now. So if you're curious more about that era, uh, I did a commentary track on it. Um, and currently, the only podcast I have going is called 96 Greers. Uh, me and my partner, Reg Lynn, are watching every single movie that Judy Greer appears in. Um, we just did an episode on adaptation. We got to see her live at the world-famous uh, Chicago Steppenwolf Theater uh, on stage, and we talked about the uh, stage production that she was in. We're going to be talking about her new movie, Aporia, and that episode might be out by the time this is out. Uh, Sci-fi, time travel kind of a thriller thing that she's the star in. A um, lot of different kinds of movies in that, and that's always a lot of fun. So 96 Greers, also on the Now Playing Network. Oh, Nice. And um, you are set for a couple more movies. One is The Wild Boys by that French director guy whose name I'm not sure how to say. Yes. Um, um, and the other two are Seven Chances, the um, uh, uh, not Charlie Chaplin, the funnier one. Buster. Buster, yeah. Rimes. And Raw D. What? Buster Rhymes. Oh yeah, Buster Rhymes. Cool. Uh, from Leaders of a New School. <laughs> underrated early early nineties hip hop. They should be more talked about. Yeah, but I don't want to talk about hip hop right now. Seven Chances, the Buster. I'm gonna say Buster Rhymes. Thanks a lot, Joel. Nice. Seven Chances. Yeah, the Keaton movie and Raw Deal, which is I think a noir movie. That's right. So, which one do you want to cover next? Uh, you know what? Let's do the Wild Boys. All right, perfect. I uh, can't wait because I rewatched that one recently, and I was like, uh, I I really want to talk about this movie. It takes quite a couple weird turns <laughs> throughout the movie. It's it's, but, but, de it's dense. There's a lot to chew on. Yeah, that's that's gonna be one I'm kind of nervous to talk about because some of it's like I don't know <laughs> how I will sound talking about some of this. But I was still excited. Anyway, yeah. It's on Tubi and shit. And, um, Alexandria, you're set for... Uh, oh, wait, I think... Uh, oh, yeah, it was um, How to Marry a Millionaire. Mm -hmm. And, um, that, uh, Djibouti, the African movie from Djibouti the, about the teen girls. I forgot the title of it. Okay. So, uh, which one do you want to cover next? Uh, how to be a millionaire. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful one. With Marilyn Monroe. Right. Yeah, hopefully Joel can make that one. Okay. I think you like that movie, All right, J Dog. I haven't seen that one. You'll love it. How to marry a millionaire? Yep. You'll love it. Wait, have uh, I seen it? Hold on. I think so. Yeah, you know. Brain. Brain no work. How to bury a millionaire. Marry a millionaire. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I have seen that one. I'm just, yeah, I don't know yet. Okay. Has Rory Calhoun, who I only know who he is. I learned who he is because of The Simpsons. Really? I learned because of Family Guy. 
Um, there's that raccoon joke that Mr. Burns has in some episode. Anyway, three women sent out eligible millionaires to marry. They find treatment in the process. No, I haven't seen this one. Oh, okay, perfect. Well, anyway, yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, yeah, Patrick, Alexandria, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, uh, social media stuff, if you feel like promoting that. Sorry, I forgot. Um, yeah, you, you I, can... the only social media thing I have to promote other than. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You finish. Uh, I was just going to say, I, the only thing I have to promote is on Twitter and I'm not promoting Twitter. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Uh, well, you guys can find me on Instagram and Twitter as film and vinyl. All right. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Veda underscore Huff. It's our, it's a name from. Maybe the worst Spike Lee movie, She Hate Me. It's a character played by Q-Tip. I just like that name. And, uh, yeah. And I'm on Twitter under the podcast stuff. And I'm on Facebook, but who cares? That's mainly for family shit and whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, J-Dog, do you even care about social media stuff? Or do you just want to skip that? JDT Games, but, uh... I don't even know if that's the tag. I can't remember. It's been so long. So, no. If you want to get in contact with me, send an email to Spencer at BigButtLover69. <laughs> I'll say your, your, I'll add your phone number at the end of the episode. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> All right. See you guys next time for whatever movie it is because I don't have a set order. Our theme music is by James Fell. Our logo is by Andrew Bargeron. You can find him as Jemetsko on Threadless, TeePublic, Redbubble, Shirt Woot Catalog, and T-Theory. That is spelled G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. You can find our show in previous seasons on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and other places where you can find podcasts.